Thank you, ladies and John. Would you reach for your Bibles and stand with me? Let's be prepared to read from God's Word this morning and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. As Pastor Bruce concludes the two-week series on you, the election, and the glory of God, glorifying God after the election day. Now that the election is over, how should we respond? Other than gratitude for no more commercials and mailers, there's an attitude that God wants us to have, and we're going to find that in our text of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Father, we thank you that you are in control um, of our lives and of the world and that we can submit to you and your rule um, and what you have uh, for us as, a, as individuals, as a church, as, as people, as, as a nation. Help us to always uh, be thankful for the things uh, that, that you do and for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Election Tuesday just happened. After months of campaigning across the nation, the political dust has settled, and our president is Barack Obama. Some are celebrating, others are disappointed. But whether your candidate ended up winning or losing, there's a message in this for all of us. It's clear, and it's simple. God establishes authority figures in our lives. That's the message. Nothing earth-shattering, really. God establishes authority figures in our lives. The Apostle Paul nailed it when he said, Every person should place themselves under the authority of the government. There isn't any authority unless it comes from God. And the authorities that are there have been put in place by God. And that's true if your guy won, it's also true if your guy lost. But win or lose, what matters now is how we respond. We can gloat because we won, we can complain because we lost, or we can do something, nothing less than beautiful. We can seek God on Mr. Obama's behalf, praying fervently for his wife, for his children, and for an increased sensitivity to God's voice. We can get involved in our own communities, and we can become the change we hope to see in Washington. Consider this. What if Christians became known as that group of people who are a source of Christ's grace and strength for our new president? Remember, God establishes authority figures in our lives. And friends, this authority figure is going to need God's grace and strength more than he can possibly know. Well, it's no shock, no surprise. As most people are aware, the presidential election is now over. And I'm sure many of us, like Zach said are breathing a huge sigh of relief that the season of contention and the barrage of political ads and mellers are now over. 
In fact, how many of you saw the uh, YouTube video with the little girl in Colorado who was crying and their parents caught it on, on video and sent it up on YouTube of her crying and saying, basically, no more Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. Anybody see that video YouTube? Yeah, all right, some of you did. Yeah, that was just hilarious. And how that is probably the sentiment of many of us across our nation. But whether your candidate won or lost, remember what we learned last Sunday. God is still sovereign, and Jesus Christ is still the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As John Quincy Adams, our sixth president, once said, duty is ours, results are God's. And I hope each of us did our duty last Tuesday and exercised our rights as citizens of America and voted, and now the results are in God's hands. And it's regardless of who you voted for, we're all facing the same question. And that is the question that was posed in the video. It's the question that I want us to ponder and answer this morning. Now that the election is over, how should we respond? And the answer is this, we should respond as Christ followers by glorifying God with grateful praying and godly living. That's what this message is about. We should glorify God with grateful praying and godly living. That should be our response now that the election is over as Christ followers. Now, let me... Add to this a caveat, glorifying God is something we are called to do all the time. I think most of us here, we understand that. But this is something we need to be reminded of, especially after a presidential election. I love what the Apostle Paul writes, and it's there in your notes, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. He says, now to the King, and it's capitalized. It's in reference to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now what's interesting, when Paul wrote those words, the Roman government at that time in his life was rife with corruption and antagonism toward Christianity. In fact, Rome was ruled by the shameless and murder, murderous emperor named Nero. you probably heard of him. This emperor actually burned Rome just to create antagonism toward Christians, whom he falsely then blamed for the destruction and the burning of Rome. Under Nero's rule, the most virtuous of citizens of Rome were put to death, and countless Christians were martyred. In fact, it was under Nero's hatred of Christians that eventually resulted in the death of the Apostle Paul, even Peter himself, and other church leaders as well. But what is interesting, before Paul was killed, before he was martyred at the hands of Nero, Paul wrote to his young disciple, his disciple named Timothy, who was seeking to establish a church, a church in the city of Ephesus. This young church of Christ followers, was facing constant attack from the pagan culture, the corrupt government at that time, and even the devil himself. And yet, when Paul writes these words that we read here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the power of the gospel was on the march, and the glory of God was still being accomplished. 
Paul clearly understood the trials of living under the rule of Rome. But he was more convinced in his own heart of the power of the gospel and the glory of God. And so with this conviction in his mind and heart, Paul penned these very words to his young disciple, Timothy, who was trying to establish a church in the city of Ephesus, in which still has so much relevance in application for us even today in the 21st century. So what I want us to do is to consider what Paul writes here about the glory of God, about glorifying God. And as we consider what he says about glorifying God, he tells us two things about grateful praying and godly living that have application and relevance for us even today. Notice these two things with me, if you will. Number one, the first thing he tells us is that the priority of grateful praying and godly living is first of all. He tells us it's first of all. We see this when he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 1, Therefore, I exhort, or I urge, some of your translations may say, first of all. And then Paul later, immediately after these words, he tells us what should be first of all in our lives. Look what he says. That supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now, This phrase that he uses, first of all, he refers to a place of importance, a place of priority. In other words, in comparison to other duties, other obligations, grateful praying and godly living as Christ followers should be a priority, a first priority in issue in our lives. In other words, it should be the most important thing that is about us, that consumes us. First of all, how many like to be first? You know, Alabama lost last night. They were first, but boy, they took a stumble at the hands of Texas A&M, and they're not first of all anymore. In fact, we're going to have a new first of all in the polls tonight, the BCS polls. How many are grateful and looking forward to that new first of all team here? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, K-State Wildcats are going to rise to first of all. Listen, Paul is telling us that grateful praying and godly living is to be first of all in our lives as Christ followers. Now, when it comes to prayer, Paul lists four different words that he uses for prayer. You may have noticed them. He uses the word supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks, and these Uh, They're just four different types of prayers. In fact, some commentators say the first three words are all synonymous, and the last one, giving of thanks, is the attitude in which we lift up our prayers. Our goal here this morning is not to do a prayer study of these four words. And while these four components, I, I do believe, give us a balanced and effective prayer focus, here's what I want us to focus in on. Here's what I want you to laser in on. And remember, don't miss the scope or the breath of Paul's command here to pray. Notice what he says. Notice the scope. He says, pray for all men, for kings, 
and all who are in authority. Now, what does this mean for us today, exactly? How can we translate this, apply this to our lives today? It means we are to, and notice it in your notes on the screen, we are to pray for all peoples, especially for our government leaders in authority. We're to pray for all peoples of the world. We just came out of our world outreach celebration. And Paul is highlighting this again. We are to pray for everyone, without distinction, all peoples. But Paul highlights for the church at Ephesus and also for us even today in America after a presidential election that we are to especially pray for our government leaders in authority. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, he's writing to young believers, a young church at Ephesus, at that time, where they had kings and emperors and other people in authority. Now, why? Why would Paul need to say this to Timothy and to these believers at the church of Ephesus? Ephesus, I mean. Why, why would Paul need to remind them, not only remind them, but he commands them? Timothy? Church at Ephesus? I command you, I urge you, I exhort you to pray for everyone, but especially for the king in power at that time and all others in authority. Why would he say this? Well, think about it. This is a group of believers, and they're meeting probably in some house church in the city of Ephesus. And they are in a culture that is dominated by other hostile religions. Nero is the emperor. And Rome is not too friendly towards Christians. In other words, this is a persecuted minority. Now, with that in mind, what do you think would have been the temptation of their hearts? I think the temptation would have been the same temptation I would have had. And that is to pray that God would blast Nero into oblivion. God, just demolish him. Get rid of him. Take him out of my life. That might have been their only prayer request in the bulletin if they had such. And yet Paul is saying to Timothy and these believers at the church of Ephesus, no, I want you to pray with a heart of gratefulness, thankfulness for kings and all who are in authority, including Nero, who is so antagonistic to you. Pray for him. In fact, thank God for him. Paul is telling these believers to pray for all people, even those who are in authority, even those who are opposed to you, because let's be honest, their temptation is my temptation. And their temptation would have been to hate the minority that was persecuting them. What a timely message this is for us, isn't it? For us who live in a culture that is becoming more and more post-Christian and even anti-Christian, if I can say that. As Christ followers, even today, it's easy to feel like we are a, quote, persecuted minority. Like the government is going after me and the judiciary is against us and both are undermining the foundations that I value of this nation. 
And the temptation is to be somewhat angry about that. Paul here is telling us, no, no, here's the attitude that I want you to have as a Christ follower. Don't hate them, pray for them. I want you to pray for all peoples, and especially for your president, and for your congress, and for the judges, and for all who are in authority. Now, let me give you three reasons why Paul says this. Why should we pray for our government leaders? Three reasons. First of all, government leaders are established by God as servants for our good. In fact, some of your translations of the Bible over in Romans chapter 13 may even use the word ministers instead of servants. They're the same thing. Government leaders are established by God as servants or ministers for our good. And some of you, you, hear, you look at the word servants and ministers and you kind of chuckle. Really? You, what? Are you kidding me? My senator? Kind of reminds me of J. Vernon McGee, who was a, a longtime pastor and author and even a radio minister in the 20th century. He tells the story that many years ago, a famous chaplain of the Senate was asked by a visitor, do you pray for the senators? And he replied, no, I look at the senators and I pray for the country. And you may agree with that. But the truth is, listen folks, even a corrupt government, if it really governs, is better than no government. It's better than anarchy and chaos. And that's the emphasis that Paul is making in Romans chapter 13. And so Paul encouraged us in this chapter of Romans to see our government as a gift from God himself When he writes in Romans 13, verses 1, and if you drop down to verse 4, he says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities, in verse 4 he says, that exist have been established by God, for the one in authority is God's servant or minister for your good. They're established for our good. I know some of you are thinking, what good? I don't see much good. It's still better than what it could be. And as Christians, we ought to be grateful for the government that we have, that God has established here. And remember when Paul wrote these words, the man in power was who? Nero. And yet Paul says we are to give thanks for our government and we are to pray for whoever is in power, whether the leaders are corrupt or not, whether you voted for them or not, and even if you disagree with them, we are to pray for those who rule the daily affairs of our lives and we are to do so with a grateful heart. Why? Because our government leaders are established by God as servants for our good. A second reason Paul gives us here is government leaders are used by God. They're used by God, get this, to actually accomplish his purposes, whether they believe in him or not. When God wanted to punish his people, his rebellious people, the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 10 verse 5 says that God used the king of Assyria as a rod of his wrath by stirring him up to attack the nation of Israel. Remember what we learned last Sunday with King Nebuchadnezzar? 
He was this great king of Babylon at that time, the greatest empire of the world at that time, who said to himself in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And how did God respond to that? God took away his reasoning. And he made him eat grass like an ox until he learned his lesson that everything God does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble according to Daniel chapter 4 verse 37. In other words, what we see here is no king, no president, no prime minister, no ayatollah can stay the hand of God when he has purpose to do such a thing. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Therefore, we have strong encouragement to pray for our government leaders. Whether they are believers or not, because our God reigns and none can stay his hand. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but this is a reason for hope regardless of who is living in the White House or who is sitting in Congress, because God is able to accomplish His purposes whether they believe in Him or not. In a letter published on his blog, author and pastor Max Licato wrote, and I quote his words here, he says, Let others lose sleep over the election. Let others grow bitter from party or petty rivalries. Let others cast their hope with the people of the elephant or the donkey. Not followers of Jesus. We place our trust in the work of God. How many kings has has he seen come and go? How many nations has he seen stand and fall? He is above them all and he oversees them all. So while others get anxious, we don't. Here is what we do, he says. We pray. We pray to God, and we pray for our government leaders, and we do so with a grateful heart. The third reason why we pray is because government leaders make decisions, and they create conditions for living a godly life, either in peace or in persecution. This is why Paul urges us to pray for kings and all those who are in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. One of the most basic benefits of a good government is peace. Both freedom from civil strife within our own country and the freedom to worship like we are worshiping here this morning. And while peace is something that we should give thanks for, listen, peace is also something that many believers in the rest of the world don't have. Which is why later on, over in his second book, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes these sobering words to us when he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now we can be thankful that in our country we still have the opportunity to live a godly life as Christ followers in Peace, free from persecution, at least today. I don't know what God's will is tomorrow on this. 
or a year from now, ten years from now. But today, we give thanks for the peace that our government provides us and the freedoms we have. And even on this Veterans Day, to give thanks for those who have fought for our peace and are currently fighting for our peace. The question is, what are we doing with it? Today we have peace. We live in peace. I can live a godly life in relative peace. Free from persecution. And the question is, what am I doing with my peace that the government has surrounded me with, provided me with? Am I making the most of my peace that God has granted me today? Indeed, we must not take for granted the freedoms we currently enjoy. And so Paul urges us, he exhorts us to pray for kings and all those in authority so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, taken by itself, that phrase, isolated, taken by itself, this request may seem to fly right in the face of everything else God's Word teaches us. Is it true that in the last analysis that all we are really after in praying for our leaders is peace and tranquility? I'm afraid there are way too many professing Christians who seem to think so. But that would be a terrible misunderstanding of God's Word and what Paul is writing here in the book of 1 Timothy. Listen, folks. Listen to me carefully. This is not a prayer to live a quiet, middle-class life free from stress in order to pursue the so-called American dream. Which brings us to the second thing Paul says about glorifying God with grateful praying and godly living. Number two, he tells us that the purpose, we've just seen the priority that it should be in our lives as Christ followers, but now he gives us the reason for it, the purpose for grateful praying and godly leaving is the salvation of all. This means we're not praying for an easy life here as Christians in America. We are praying for an opportunistic life. A life that will maximize the peace for the salvation of all peoples. You see, why pray that our government leaders will keep the peace? Notice the reason Paul gives us in verses 3 and 4. Look at it. He says, for this is good. And it's acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see the flow of thought here between verses 1 and 2 and now what he says in verses 3 and 4? He's saying grateful praying and godly living should be first of all. Why? For the purpose of salvation of all. Notice this. This means for the salvation of all peoples. It means we should pray with gratefulness and we should live in godliness for the purpose of spreading the gospel to all peoples. 
This is our purpose of praying, for peace and tranquility. In other words, the purpose of our grateful praying, the purpose of our godly living is spreading the gospel to all peoples. It is a gospel focus, and it's Christ-centered. As John Piper writes, God approves of our prayers for peace and tranquility because he approves of the advance of the gospel. Peace is not the main thing. Salvation is the main thing. Tranquility is not the goal. The knowledge of the truth of God, that's the goal here. So the reason, follow Paul's logic here. The reason we pray for our government leaders is because the conditions they create and the decisions they make that either advance or impede the spread of the gospel to all peoples. But let's be honest. And I have to be honest with my own self here. All right? So we're all in this boat together here. Let's be honest on this. Don't just brush over this. Look within your own heart. As I look within my heart, how many of us are more concerned about whether our government leaders, who's in the White House, who's sitting in Congress, will create conditions that advance or impede my pursuit of the American dream. Whether they'll create conditions that advance or impede the economy in this nation, or the job market, And it's easy to get caught up in that, isn't it? Before this election, as we thought about who we were going to vote for, whether in the presidential election or the Senate, state, and as you listen to the debates, it was all about one thing, the economy. As Bill Clinton would say, it's the economy, stupid. It's the economy. It's all about the economy. And as Christ followers, it's easy to get swept up into this emotion that it's all about the economy. Listen, as Christ followers, it's not all about the economy. It's about the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate purpose here and goal. As Christ followers, God calls us to a bigger and higher purpose. He calls us to the kingdom purpose of spreading the gospel to all peoples. This is what we should be more concerned about. Not if the government is going to advance or impede my pursuit of the American dream, or the economy, or the stock market, or whatever it is. But rather, the ultimate priority and the purpose of my life is the spread of the gospel to all people. Are they creating conditions? Are they making decisions that help me to spread it here in America and through all the world? Are they impeding that? That's what we're praying for peace. That's the reason why we're praying this way. So, because I know my heart, I know what I have gotten caught up in, I know your heart, let me give you a couple of truths here and to let your heart be gripped by. Because we need to be reminded of these truths. We need to ask God to grip our heart anew and afresh with these two truths. The economy shouldn't be gripping our heart. 
These truths should be gripping our heart. Notice the first one. God's desire is that all peoples would be saved. God's desire is that all peoples would be saved. God's heart towards humanity is to see all peoples come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. You know what Paul's doing here? He is just expressing an Old Testament hope here. And what was the hope of the Old Testament prophets? That one day, the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and that all the nations would worship whom? Not the president, not the prime minister, not some emperor in a foreign nation, but they would worship the Messiah, the living God. And so now Paul here in the New Testament, he is simply reaffirming this hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that God's desire is that all the nations would come to a saving knowledge of Him. Does this mean that all peoples will be saved? Of course not. We know from the rest of Scriptures that many people will reject Jesus for their salvation. Warren Wiersbe offers this perspective, who was a longtime pastor, author, writes many commentaries, and Warren Wiersbe says this, and I quote, Jesus died on the cross that He might draw all men to salvation. This does not mean all people without exception, for certainly the whole world is not going to be saved. But rather, it means all people without distinction. Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, religious and pagan. So the point of this verse is not to say that God has willed all to be saved. And so if they're not, God's will has somehow failed. The point of this verse is to make the exact same point the prophet Ezekiel did. And what point did Ezekiel make about the living God? Over and over in the book of Ezekiel, he repeats this phrase. Over and over. You find it in such places as Ezekiel 33, verse 11, where God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Do you see what Paul's doing here? This is what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 2. Paul is letting us in. He's trying to get of us a glimpse of the heart of the God that we serve. And that God that we serve, He does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, but rather He delights in the salvation of all peoples. Boy, I stand back and I think, all right, what do I delight in? Do I delight in the destruction of those that I disagree with politically? Or I delight in their salvation? God, have mercy on them. Work in their life. Use me in the process. And when this truth grips our heart, it will compel us to pray with gratefulness and to live in godliness for the purpose of seeing the salvation of all peoples. But Paul doesn't stop there. He gives us a second truth that should grip our hearts, and it's related to the first truth. Notice it. Jesus Christ is the only hope of all peoples. Have you ever noticed? How can, I mean, and how can you not notice if you've paid attention to the internet, watched TV, read your flyers, 
that all presidential nominees try to win our votes by offering us what? Hope. Not just hope, but also change. Listen, here's what I will do. I'm offering the country hope. I'm going to be different from the last guy in the White House or whatever the case may be. And they all offer us hope and change. And frankly, when we look at the broad scope of time, politicians have done relatively little to change the world in a lasting way. Numerous presidents, numerous senators have sought to offer us hope and to make changes in our country. And collectively, they have proposed thousands of plans for change. And of course, we could stay here all afternoon and debate the results of those changes, those plans. But contrast, all this talk of hope and change with what Paul says now in verses 5 and 6. Look at it. Look what he says. He says, for there is what? One God and one mediator between God and men. And who is it? It's the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Folks, listen to me. This is real hope with real change. There's one God and one Savior who has one plan. That he would give himself a ransom for, for all. Paul knew that the kings and the emperors and the governments at that time, that he's writing this, they would come and they would go. But Jesus Christ is the one hope for all peoples for all times. No wonder Paul writes a few verses earlier in chapter 1, verse 15. I love what he says here. He says, listen, here, here's a trustworthy saying. How many of us have heard that from a politician, right? Here's what I promise to do. Folks, listen to me. This is the word of God. This is Paul writing. And he says, here is a trustworthy saying. This is something you can take to the bank. You can bank your life on this saying. And notice what he says. And he says it deserves full attention, full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners. And then he says, of whom I am, the worst. Some of your translations say the chief. Do we understand what Paul's saying here? There's only one way of salvation. There's only one hope, and that hope is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if we have been saved, if we have been ransomed by Jesus Christ, if we have partaken in that one hope, then let our hearts be gripped by this hope. Because there's no hope apart from Jesus Christ who gave himself a ransom for all peoples. Folks, let me encourage you. Let your hearts be gripped by this truth. Don't let your heart be gripped by the results of the election. Don't let your hearts be worried about the economy and the job market and this and that and fret over it and worry about it and just be anxious about everything in this world. Instead, let your heart be gripped by the truth that God desires all peoples to be saved. And Jesus Christ is the only hope for all peoples. And He is accomplishing that purpose. And He will stop at nothing to accomplish that purpose. And He will use governments. He will use kings. He will use presidents. And He will use peoples 
to accomplish that purpose. The question is, are you praying that way? Are you involved in it? Are you part of it? Let this truth grip your heart. Let it compel you to glorify God in this country that we're living in today and to do so with grateful praying and godly living. So what does this all mean for us now as we go forward? The election is over. How do we respond? Notice this in your notes. It means this. It means our mission continues. The election is over, but our mission continues. May we never forget that as Christ followers, we do not pray and live simply for the prosperity of our own lives. Now, we need to stop and let that sink in. As Christ followers, we do not pray, we do not live simply for the prosperity of our own lives. We pray and we live for the saving purposes of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is why we are here as Christ followers. That is why our church exists where it does. That is our purpose as a church. That is our purpose as Christ followers. And so remember, when our king returns, he won't be riding a donkey or an elephant. For those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ here today, listen, nothing has changed just because the election is now passed. The gospel is still real, and we still serve a God who has declared victory over sin and death, and our mission is to advance a kingdom that has already prevailed. Regardless of who sits in the Oval Office, our king is still sitting on his throne. So whether this morning your candidate won or whether your candidate lost, Let's step back, let's take a deep breath, and let's refocus our mission of making followers of Jesus Christ. Followers who know Christ personally as their Savior and Lord. Followers of Jesus Christ who are now growing in Christ. They're growing in a relationship with Him. How? Through His Word and His Spirit in a community of other believers, followers who are showing Christ by loving and serving people in the community and in the church, and followers of Christ who go with Christ by sharing the hope of the gospel with all peoples. This should be our focus. This is our mission. Let's pray. As we come to our response time this morning, the response is really pretty simple is to ask God to search our own hearts and to let Him expose our hearts for what they really are, what they really are filled with. And have we been filled with anxiousness, worry? Have our hearts been filled perhaps with even a little bit of bitterness and anger, resentment? And if so, to come and confess that to God and ask Him to fill our hearts with gratefulness. And to take time here at this response to pray. 
to pray for yourself, but most of all to, to pray for our leaders, to pray for President Obama, to pray for those who serve in our Congress, and to ask that God's will would be done in them and through them. In fact, I would even draw your attention, there's an insert in your bulletin. It's an insert that says how to pray for our leaders, and on the back side, there's several different prayer requests that you can offer up to God in praying for our president and leaders. Would you join me and take time here? We have a few minutes while the praise team sings to do just that. By yourself, with your spouse, wherever you are. You can, you're, you can even come to the altar here or stay at your pew. But as a congregation, to take time and pray.